0: Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.
1: As you know, none of us want to be reminded of our sin. And Black Americans became the daily reminder every time. You know, Native people, uh, that was also a sin, but they were removed from the land. So you didn't have this kind of daily reminder in your face every day that you were a country built on hypocrisy. But Black people served as, as that daily role.
2: Hello, welcome to The Show on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I've got an exciting guest on today, Nicole Hannah-Jones from The New York Times. So, Nicole Hannah-Jones is an investigative journalist at The New York Times Magazine. She focuses on racial injustice and civil rights. She's won a MacArthur Genius Grant, a National Magazine Award, all kinds, all, all the awards. <laughs> She's won all the awards. And it's because her work, uh, which is focused on segregation and integration in schools, but now has expanded, um, she ran The New York Times' 1619 Project, which is kind of trying to reframe American history to understand the ways in which slavery wasn't just a founding sin, but was integrally involved in how our institutions developed. Um, her work is, I think, central to understanding not just this moment, but but this place, who we are. Uh, she writes in that piece, uh, in the piece that frames the, the, the New York Times Magazine um, issue, that the truth is that as much democracy as this nation has today, it has been born on the backs of black resistance. Our founding fathers may not have actually believed in the ideals they espoused, but Black people did. And the place we start in this conversation is around something that has become an increasing theme of this show, which is the question of democracy as a practice, not just an ideal. And something that uh, Nicole's work does really beautifully is show that nobody has had to practice democracy as a practice, as a habit, as a way of living in which you need to hold Really contradictory ideas, really differing beliefs about your fellow man, where you need to handle the injustice that has been done to you, and somehow move forward together as a demos more centrally than Black Americans in America. So there's the sort of level of this conversation that is about school integration and slavery, um, and just the American experience and American racial past and present. Um, but there's also the part of this conversation which is about seeing in the Black experience a model of how America can work and operate uh, at its best, not in what has been done unto black Americans, but in how oftentimes they have responded and how, as she says, they've remained part of this country and remained engaged in the project of perfecting this country as opposed to withdrawing from it. Um, This is a really exciting and I think really interesting conversation. As always, you can email me, Kleinshow at Vox.com, Kleinshow at Vox.com. Here's Nicole Hannah-Jones. Nicole Hannah-Jones, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thanks for having me on.
2: So I wanted to start where your essay in the 1619 Project starts, which is with your father putting out the American flag, despite America not having quite kept its promises to him. Why why did he do that?
1: My dad was a military vet, so I think he was inherently patriotic, and he was very proud of his service, and he was proud to have a kind of... um, been willing to make the ultimate sacrifice for his country. So I think for him, it was a way of both signaling his citizenship and signaling uh, his service to the country.
2: It, you talk in the essay about your feeling of conflict over that. Did did he share it? Did he have that that conflict of what America might have done to him versus what it meant to him in him? Or was that a more resolved space in his psyche?
1: No, I think my dad certainly was conflicted about the way his country had treated him and Black people in general. But he was able to separate those feelings from the flag and from kind of an outward patriotism in a way that I was not. But yeah, he certainly, I mean, he was a Black man who was born in Greenwood, Mississippi, during racial apartheid in this country, and grew up on a segregated side of town, went to segregated schools, um entered us in busing programs to get us out of segregated schools, So he was very aware of um, the kind of daily indignities and structural inequality and racism of this country. But, um, again, felt that he had a right to claim it that I didn't understand at the time.
2: One of the things that I resonated to so much in your piece, um, I've become very obsessed with the practice of democracy, this question of, how do you actually, as a citizen, live in a democracy? What are the difficult choices and difficult personal um habits you have to cultivate? And I thought that by front-loading that, you you were able to really tell this great story that nobody has had to work on that practice of democracy more than African Americans. So could, could you talk a bit about the argument you make through the piece that we are a democracy because um, African Americans have made us a democracy, and what the what the daily habits were of holding the the tensions in America, um, the often horrible tensions in America, together for so long?
1: Sure, I think you can start with uh, this line that I have in the piece where I say no one values freedom than those who have never had it. So it, it's not that there is something you know in, innately. Uh, superior about Black Americans and our politics, but it is that we have had a singular experience in this country from the moment we um, landed here, from the moment we were forced to be a part of what would become the United States. And so what I'm basically arguing in the piece is that the men we consider our founding fathers did not actually believe in the ideals uh, that they put forth, at least not for most Americans. If you look at the Constitution, it actually excludes Most Americans from the franchise, it didn't include uh, women, no matter what their race. It didn't include Black people. It didn't include Native people. But Black Americans, really from the time of the revolution, from prior to the revolution, believed in these ideals. And because they were written out of the we in the we the people, because Black Americans were not considered part of the body politic, because they were not even considered citizens of the country of their birth, have had to fight in a way that no other group has. Um, Which is not to say other groups have not faced discrimination, Uh, but Native people had uh their sovereign countries that um they could be citizens of and immigrant groups who came over here were choosing to be a part of the United States but black americans were forced to be here um had no citizenship in any country and so because of that really had to believe in these ideals in a way that that no one else had and because of the very particular system of racial caste uh, that develops to enforce slavery and then to justify it have really had to fight the hardest to be recognized as citizens of all groups.
2: And one of the things you develop there that I think is so interesting is in the same way that, um, or in the reverse way, that Black Americans, by being excluded from the We the people, developed a much purer commitment to the values of the Constitution, that white Americans and the founding generation by excluding Black Americans, it deformed their relationship to those values. That they had to justify how they had done that, and so uh, as such, it, it always poisoned the relationship between White Americans and the values of the Constitution that they, they claim to enshrine. You talk a bit in the essay about what were the practices that allowed that cognitive dissonance to to calm itself. Um, can you discuss that a bit?
1: Yeah, sure. So. Black people are, of of all groups in this country, the most convenient to this narrative of our exceptionalism as a country and of our founding ideals and the fact that we want to believe that we were the freest, most liberatory country in the world and that we had been founded on this thing that had never occurred before, yet at the same time that the founders are writing these words— One-fifth of the population is living in absolute bondage and uh, will receive none of those rights. In fact, will be traded and treated as property. So we have to develop, as a country, a very particular psychology in order to deal with this inherent contradiction, really the biggest hypocrisy one could have, which is to be based on both freedom and bondage at the same time, in a way that other nations did not, because while we were not alone in practicing slavery, we were alone uh, at that time in being a new nation founded on these ideals of freedom that practiced slavery. So um, what I kind of show in the piece is that the kind of balm of that psychology is this really depraved violence that is reaped upon black Americans through every generation, the type of violence that uh, is almost unimaginable, you know, not just lynchings, but maimings, branding, uh, rape, uh, murder of children. Um, You know, the fact that black people would be bodies parts would be dismembered and displayed in storefront windows. It's this constant violence. I think that, um, works very well to justify this exclusion. Because if you say both psychologically, through if you say through quote-unquote science, through research, through art, and through violence, that Black people are not fully human, that Black people are not um, part of our citizenry because they are not fully human, then it justifies how Black people are left out. It justifies that contradiction. Because then we have been able to argue that, in fact, um, there was no contradiction because citizenship was reserved for people who are fully human. Um, and so you've just seen that and, and you can still clearly see elements of that in modern society.
2: Yeah, this seems to me to be a big uh, way that the 1619 Project and, and other work that others have done, like Ibrahim X. Kendi um, and, and many historians, that it sort of reverses a polarity of a lot of how we think about ideology in this country. That instead of uh, ideology being something that we uh, used to create the world we see, that ideology is something we use to justify the world that we see, that we worked backwards from the way we treated people or the conditions we kept people in and found the ideas that would justify that to ourselves as opposed to building a world, as I think we often imagine America to be, um, out of ideas that we generated through careful investigation and and, and a moral theory of the um, space we live in.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So... Part of what uh, I argue in my essay and what scholars of uh, the period of the revolution argue is that it's at that moment uh, of the revolution when uh, the colonists who will become American have to decide what is this brand new country going to be, which is, you know, a pretty rare thing to be able to create a new country from scratch. And prior to that, they had been able to deal with the contradiction of slavery by blaming it on Britain and saying, you know, Britain forced this upon us. We didn't want it. We didn't ask for it. This uh, slavery is their fault. Uh, but at that moment of the revolution, and when when we birth a new country, they have to decide at that point uh, whether they will continue slavery themselves. And of course, most uh, almost half of the founders uh, were enslavers. Ten of the first twelve presidents would were enslavers. So they decide to keep slavery, and in that. Moment, The sin becomes our own and that you really see a hardening of racial caste after the revolution when we now have to justify what many people call the original sin. I mean, as you know, none of us want to be reminded of our sin. And Black Americans became the daily reminder every time, you know, Native people... Uh, that was also a sin, but they were removed from the land. So you didn't have this kind of daily reminder in your face every day uh, that you were a country built on hypocrisy. But Black people served as as that daily role. And so what we are, you know, what the 1619 Project argues is that that is just as influential on how this country develops as these kind of founding ideals of liberation and it is that constant tension Um that you see kind of spreading and corrupting so many American institutions, even as we tried to deny that there was any influence of race and racism at all. On on
2: the question of that founding generation, it it seems to me that the conventional story we tell, as you say, 10 of the 12 first presidents were um, slave owners. But at the same time, we sort of frame them as both slaveholders and as emancipators. Mm -hmm. The idea is that in the tensions of that time, in the the kind of fallen moral world that they inhabited, that maybe they did not act purely. But what they did do was they built like a moral time bomb into the founding document of America, that they, they, they wrote these words that would then be weaponized against the very practices that they both upheld and in many cases simultaneously at least claimed to abhor. And that it is their role as like, historical emancipators, even if they were, like, in that moment, temporal enslavers, that they should be best understood for, that that represented their true self and America's true self. How do you see that narrative?
1: I think that's a pretty convenient narrative. I think that's a narrative that, um, again, allows us to have the psychology to deal with this paradox that these... um, Men were actually just very typical men of their time and motivated by very typical motivations. I don't think that I buy that argument. It really depends on how one reads the Constitution. Uh, the Constitution is certainly a pro slavery document in that it codifies slavery, it ensures the slavery, uh, the importation of enslaved people, can't end for a period of years. It codifies representation in a way that gives the slave states uh, disproportionate power. I think a lot of times, when I'm engaging with people around this, we we like to have this kind of faux sectarianism about the United States where, well, that was just in the South, uh, but the power was in those slave states. And that then requires you to ignore that uh, the most powerful men in the country, which were the presidents, were all enslavers. You can't do this kind of sectarianism and divide out those who wanted slavery versus those who didn't. I will say that we know the founders, uh, those who were Maintaining the institution of slavery because not all of them were. Many of them actually believed in abolition. Uh, they understood the contradiction of the revolution um, ending in a in a nation that was going to be a slaveocracy. But those founders who were practicing and and protecting slavery were deeply conflicted about it, um, which I think is important because we also like to pretend like they just didn't know better. They knew what they were doing was wrong and they were conflicted. So so maybe um, a generous reading is to say they kind of set up a constitution that would allow for that liberation. But I think if one is to believe that, then one has to then deny the fact that we were um, one of the last nations in our hemisphere to abolish slavery, that we were only the second nation Um in our hemisphere that required a war to abolish slavery, the first being Haiti, where the enslaved overthrew their masters. So I don't know that we can argue that the Constitution and the framers were setting up a Constitution that would kill slavery. Um, I do think that they, many believed that slavery would eventually die out. Um, and then, of course, the cotton gin gets invented, and, and that kind of erases any opportunity. But they could have just ended the institution, and um only one of them even freed the people that they owned and uh, that was George Washington and he didn't free them until he died
2: there are a bunch of pieces in there that I want to pick up on but we start with the cotton gin because i think a lot of people <laughs> um will not be super familiar with what uh, yes. w- with the role that played but you weave an economic history of this throughout the entire project that i think is an important um part to 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 keep in mind so do you say the cotton gin ended that opportunity what do you mean
1: yeah so it's funny because if you ask probably any of your listeners who invented the cotton gin, we all know Eli Whitney invented the cotton gin. It, it is a very important invention that we learn almost little and nothing about. We, we we actually kind of learn about it completely disconnected from the institution of slavery and the expansion of slavery. But why the cotton gin is so important was um, slavery was not this... It made profit, but it didn't make that kind of vast profit that would drive the expansion and lead us to the Civil War eventually, um, until the invention of the cotton gin. Before that, it was very, very difficult and laborious to remove the seeds from the cotton, and you cannot do what you need to with cotton when those seeds are in there. Um, And so cotton wasn't that profitable but when Eli Whitney invents the cotton gin, it I think it speeds up the process of removing those seeds some 50 times. And all of a sudden, you can just make, you know, it's basically petroleum. It's the petroleum industry. You can make just... Ungodly amounts of money off of cotton because cotton production is sped up so much. And that really leads to the expansion of slavery um, across the Southeast. It leads to the removal of those tribes uh, in the Southeast regions. And you just see cotton, you just see cotton production and uh, the United States dependency on slavery explode. And it was not a Southern dependency. Um, we often disconnect, of course, uh, the northern textile mills. From the South, but it is uh, enslaved-produced cotton that is fueling those textile mills. It is slave-produced cotton that is fueling the economy and the financial economy of New York City. Uh, So much so that at the time of the Civil War, the mayor of New York City threatened to succeed with the South because uh, the finances of that city was so intertwined with uh, enslaved-produced cotton. So we're kind of taught about the cotton gin as this kind of innocuous story of American ingenuity, we're not taught about the way that it drives a system uh, of inhumanity and expands slavery and really turns the system into a much more brutal system um, where sometimes enslaved people die within an average of seven years. Um, The
2: other thing I want to pick up there that uh, you mentioned is we are one of only two countries in the hemisphere that needed a war to end slavery. And, and I think that's such an interesting and important point because the way that is typically framed in our history is that America purged its founding sin in the blood of the Civil yes. War. And that by fighting that war, we, we we showed our commitment. Like that was our reparations, right? Our here being white Americans. Like that was white America's reparation, the, the mountains of dead in the Civil War. But that other countries— saw the inhumanity of slavery and got rid of it and did so without a war, which in some ways seems more <laughs> admirable to me, actually. Um, can, can you talk a bit about what is what is contained or not contained in the fact that we needed a war where, say, um, the UK didn't?
1: Yeah, I'm really interested in this idea of national memory and how we uh, create and kind of promulgate a memory That is not necessarily based on facts, but based on how we want to see ourselves as a country. And the way that we are taught about uh, slavery and the Civil War is certainly uh, one of those most pervasive myths. Um, I probably battle, you know, daily on Twitter, people who say, you know, we, we, the United States— yeah, we we had slavery, but we led the abolition of slavery across the world. We did not. <laughs> um, you know, my ancestors died, so your ancestors could be free. Well, in most places, white people did not have to die to end the institution of slavery. Uh, so I think that myth is very foundational to how we want to see ourselves, which is that we had this, you know, that we were deeply torn by slavery, that um, half of the country, you know, the real representative part of the country, because in this narrative, we also have to pretend as if the South is not really America, as if the South really doesn't represent America. Um, So, you know, half of the country is torn by slavery. This is the the true part of our country, even though most of our founders didn't live in that part of the country, uh, fought and died so that we could free you. The truth is, you know, this war was about power and representation and kind of the un, uh, disproportionate power that the South got. It was about whether we were going to keep expanding slavery at the cost of free white labor into the West. It was about, as Abraham Lincoln said, wanting the West to be basically free white men's country and not wanting them to have to compete with enslaved labor. Um, it was about a lot of things. And it was also to some degree about the immorality of a system of slavery, but not not really. Um, And Abraham Lincoln in his own writings, you know, acknowledges that most of the white people who were fighting in the Civil War were absolutely not fighting to end slavery. They were fighting to preserve the Union and actually felt, you know, pretty angry about the fact that they were dying uh, to free Black people. So it is not an accidental myth that we have. Um, Now, to be fair, in most of the parts of the world or of our hemisphere, where black people were liberated uh, from slavery without a war, including most of the English colonies, uh, the white population in those places was very small. They were vastly outnumbered. Um, There would not have been a war that they could have won which Haiti was kind of the the best example of that. And you saw this move to, uh, to start to abolish slavery in the Caribbean because of that fear of what happened in Haiti. And in America, it was very different. Uh, the black population was vastly outnumbered. Um, we were a majority white country. And so it took a lot more uh, to purge us from that sin.
2: When I read the um, conversation over the 1619 Project, A lot of it picks up on something you had said a minute ago, which is this idea of how do we want to see ourselves as a country? And it it sparked this big meta-conversation and and often angry um, backlash meta-conversation, arguing that the 1619 Project and and the sort of broader progressive history effort right now is trying to make us see ourselves as an evil nation, right? A a, a nation built on white supremacy, built on slavery, almost irredeemable in in its nature— and i'm I'm curious actually, to just ask you the questions for like, how do you want us to see ourselves as a nation? like what do you what how do you see us as a, as a nation?
1: I don't tend to look at nations as evil or good. um I, I think that's a very simplistic, I almost want to say childish and naive way of looking at any country. Um, countries are not evil or good people are not evil or good um, We were uh, a nation that was founded on lofty ideals but for a lot of really complicated reasons and the p- men who founded our country um, were men and <laughs> they were complicated and uh, did many good things and they did many bad things. And I think that we have to grapple with that. you know we are a uh, the world's foremost, multiracial democracy, but that was not the intent of the men who founded this country. And um, I guess what I'm arguing for and what my piece argues for is it says those ideals they laid out were actually powerful and they were great. And the idea that we were all born with inalienable rights, that all men and women are created equal, are probably some of the most beautiful, important words uh, ever written. And we have to credit those men for writing those. But we also have to be truthful about what that meant, that millions died for that, that Native people lost their own lands, that they lost their lives, that Black Americans were completely deprived and brutalized um, under these so-called ideals, but that it, it is the ideals that were right and just. And I think one of the things, I mean, there's two things I think that really bother people who believe that somehow this project is trying to delegitimize our history. Is One, these are people who only want to see a history that adheres to a narrative, but history is supposed to, as best as we can, tell the truth about things um, and help us to understand really why we are like we are. You can't choose to remember 1776 and not remember that one-fifth of the people who lived here were in bondage in 1776. You can't ignore 1619 and the way that that has affected us. Um And so I think in much the same way that a lot of white Americans feel that the changing demographics of our country are threatening to them, the changing balances of power are threatening to them, they see a history that no longer deifies white Americans um, as threatening. And they certainly have been reacting to the way that we wrote this history where we're saying those who have been treated as the least, those who have been treated as a problem, actually believed in these ideals the most and fought the hardest for them and fought for all Americans to make them true. The centering of Black Americans, I think, is very, very challenging for people um, who truly believe um, that Black people have been unworthy. That Black people just sat around waiting for white people to free them and make their lives better. And I think they are uncomfortable with the challenge that the very existence of Black Americans in this country poses to our national narrative. I think I've said before, um, you know, we are the most Black people of all people in this country are the most inconvenient to our national narrative because the only explanation for our existence on these lands is the fact that this country was built on a lie.
2: You have this beautiful line towards the end of the piece where you say that it's time to recognize that um, Black people aren't the problem in the American narrative, but actually the solution to it. Yes, yes. And that that seems to be threaded through this idea that nobody has had to practice the values of America more. And in framing sort of the African-American experience as a protagonist of actually trying to live out and hold up uh, American values, there seems to me to be something bigger that got missed in the project in that it struck me as ironic that... The reaction to a piece that was all about how, and a project that was all about how Black Americans have had to hold these incredibly contrasting ideas of America simultaneously, both the reality of its inhumanity to them and the glory of its ideals um, aspirationally for them. And that the reaction was so angry in the effort to hand some of that tension and contradiction in a much lighter way to the rest of the country and say, you know now you have to hold your version of this mm-hmm. tension, which is the inhumanity of America's past, but also the degree to which African-Americans have held and fought for its ideals. That this que- this request to live with discomfort as opposed to a collapse into one narrative or the other, um, it seems very important uh, to how we practice democracy in America, that we somehow have to hold things that feel contradictory simultaneously. But the reaction, a lot of it seemed to be quite terrified of that complexity, right? Quite, um, quite angry at the symbolic level that either the request is that America be understood as all good or it had to be understood as all bad. And that so much of the, the the essay and the history that you write through is actually about a lot of people have never been given the privilege of making that choice. And in never making that choice, they've actually done a tremendous amount to improve America and that it's now time for others to sort of embrace both like the difficulties and the progress that can come out of that complexity. Is, is that read fair?
1: Yes. Um, it's funny because of all the, I mean, this this project is deeply disturbing if you read uh, the entire thing. And um, it, it was very, very emotionally taxing to do, but of everything I've ever done, it is the most hopeful Um Because it is not, as some people said, it is not um, a project that hates this country. It is actually a project that says those who would have every right to hate this country have the most abiding love for it. And, you know, given the opportunity to leave, have not. Given the opportunity to check out, have not. Um, But have instead fought for all marginalized people. um, Part of the reason I think that the project has gotten the reaction that it's gotten is is Americans are looking around at the country right now and you hear this again and again, oh, this is not who we are as Americans. And uh, I think this project is clearly arguing, well, this is exactly who we often are as Americans, but not who we have to be as Americans. And there are people right here who can kind of guide us towards those founding ideals, but they're not the people who we have usually looked to or at least given that credit to. So... I find this piece to be tremendously hopeful. I find this piece to—this project to be kind of the roadmap to the America that many of us believe we already are, but we're clearly not, but the America that we could be if we chose. You have to give credit to to those who wrote these ideas down and those who kind of set us on the stage of a country that could even— believe in equality and put that forth as a value. But then we have to look at those who actually had to die uh, and and work to make this happen and understand that that is actually where the answer is. It is is not in the powerful, who can control, um, who gets democracy and who doesn't. But it really is uh, those on the ground who are working to ensure that this country lives up to its ideals.
2: In the sense that history is always using our past to instruct us somewhat about how to live in our present, what is living with this change about our present? What would an America that accepted these contradictory threads of its story look like today if it were trying to to take their lessons and demand a higher version of itself?
1: What I hoped that this project would do was purge us of this denial that Slavery was a long time ago. It was a marginal institution that had very little to do with the way our society functions today. Um, pull really the curtain back and and hope that once you see it, you can't unsee it. So our society would look, um, I think first it would be a society that makes restitution, that acknowledges that this um, generational theft uh, of Black Americans' ability to not just gain wealth, but live as full citizens, that something is owed. And um, that in addressing that debt, we actually improve not just our economy, but our society. I hope that it would force us to be more serious about our idea of a common good, that when we Think about our worst nature. We are a country that is extremely selfish and individualistic. But if you look to the way that black Americans, because everything about our lives has always been determined by our membership in this group that was called black, um, believe in a communal uplift and a common good. That That's the America of our ideals is that we take care of each other. And I think if you look at this project, you realize that. Um, the way we operate our prisons, the way we uh, divvy up resources for schools and for healthcare that that's actually not the America of our ideals. And maybe that moves us um, to think more about a common good, but the common good has to include all of us who are in this multiracial democracy. And I hope it would also lead us um, to being much more serious about who can practice democracy and who cannot. If you stop viewing Black people as a problem, um, then you understand that all of these efforts to restrict the vote, uh, efforts not to be serious about making it easier for people to vote, um, a democracy that looks truly representative of its citizenry, then, then you understand not only that that is important, but that that is not something to be afraid of. That that is actually um, putting your country in very good hands.
2: I think that's a good point to stop for, for a quick break. We will be right back.
3: Support for the Great area comes from Mint Mobile. When you hear secret sauce, maybe you think of the mysterious ingredient in your favorite burger, or perhaps it's your grandmother's terrifying meatloaf, which somehow seemed to secrete sauce. But from now on, when you hear secret sauce, I want you to think about Mint Mobile. Their secret is that they only sell wireless service online. That means they can cut the cost of retail stores and pass those savings directly to you. By switching to Mint Mobile, you can get three months of premium wireless service for 15 bucks a month. To get this new customer offer and your new three month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, you can go to mintmobile.com slash gray area. That's mintmobile.com slash gray area. You can cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash gray area. $45 upfront payment required equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details.
2: as applicable is this idea of looking in our national ideologies and narratives for places where we are trying to justify something that is unjust. And when we had started talking about doing a podcast, we'd been, it was in the context of the fight over busing and integration that had broken out in the Democratic primary. And you'd written a beautiful piece about that, uh, where you talked about. The argument against busing, the sort of putatively race-neutral argument as being the educational version of arguing that the Civil War was about states' rights rather than slavery, you could uphold racist practices and systems while arguing that race had nothing to do with it. And that that strikes me as a very clear kind of line between these projects. That it is recurrent in American history that we have to justify something that is obviously unjust, the level of segregation in our schools or slavery yes. or so on, and that we find because we have developed an idea of ourselves at this point that um, abhors racism, at least in the abstract, we have to find ways of justifying it that allow us to avoid that charge while still not changing the underlying uh, reality. Yeah, like, let's start with the the busing example. Like, how do you read that in light of that project?
1: So there's two things, I think. Um, One, this idea of camouflaging Clearly, racist practices and policies uh, through race-neutral language is as old as our Constitution. The first time the word "slave" or "slavery" appears in the Constitution is in the Thirteenth Amendment, which ends the practice. Even though the slave, uh, the Constitution, you know, three-fifths compromise, um, the allowing the federal government to intervene to put down slave insurrections, uh, you know, we're, we are codifying slavery, uh, saying you can't. Um, In the international slave trade until 1808, uh, we're codifying it without using the language. We're coming up with all of these euphemisms um, for slaves and slavery without using it. So this is actually a very old practice. Um, We just have gotten increasingly sophisticated with it as laws have changed that say you can no longer be explicitly racist um, in terms of legal art. Um, But the other thing I think that's important is we have now come to think of racism as just being about individual bad actors, a white nationalist or a Klansman, not, you know, the nice mom in the suburbs who just wants a good school for her kids. And we don't look at racism as these systems and structures that are in place and will proceed whether you have rabid racists pushing them forward or not. And that's really what busing came down to. The reason you saw so much opposition, I mean, one, I'm, I argue you shouldn't call it busing. It's, it's school desegregation, uh, court order school desegregation. Buses are simply the vehicle that many school systems had to use to integrate because housing had been forcibly integrated. But busing allows you to use a very race neutral term to push back against a policy where if you said, I don't want Black kids in my school, you would appear to be racist. And so we've seen that embrace of that both on, both on the left and the right uh, amongst white Americans. And it gives you this sheen of deniability because all we ever want to know these days is what's in someone's heart. Well, you can't prove that they oppose busing because they're racist, you know, my work argues you don't have to prove what's in anyone's heart. It's like, what what is the end result? And was it a predictable result of the policy? That's all that we need to know. But we we've gotten very sophisticated with our language. And you see this happen right after the civil rights movement. As soon as it is no longer legal to be explicitly racist, communities in the North and the South adopt race neutral ways. And the press has been more than happy to regurgitate that and not explicate it. There's an
2: interesting dynamic here that this reminds me of a bit. Uh, I'd done worked on a piece about the racial wealth gap for our Netflix show, and that had introduced me to the work of Mursa mm-hmm. um whose book, the, uh, "The Color of Money," is just fantastic on this. And she's been on the show before. But something that she argues um, in kind of telling the story of how race has infected our credit and economic institutions from the beginning of the country is she sort of shows that you can have something begin in a place of true racism, right? You were locked out of good jobs. You were locked out of operating within banks and getting credit and getting loans. And then over time, what that does is it destroys your community. And so your community is poor. The people in it cannot pay back loans. They do not have the jobs that allow them to do that. And now the banks, which may not see themselves as doing anything racist, are just looking at these questions of credit risk and saying, well, I don't want to loan to there. Um, I'm only going to do payday loans there. And that over and over again, one of the things that ends up being a kind of two-step in American life is something begins in a space of outright explicit racism. That racism over time creates tremendous disadvantage. And then later on, people quite rationally do not want to be involved in that disadvantage. They don't want their child being bused to a school they think is worse. They don't want to be, um, you know, they don't want to see home values in their area go down. And the view is like, I'm not doing anything except protecting my own interests in a very straightforward way. Like, this has nothing to do with how I feel about anyone else. And yet, if you, like, if nobody ever has to sacrifice anything, then nothing can ever change. Like, you just entrench past racism is current inequality and now it's just inequality and now you just have capitalist incentives take over and everybody's making a perfectly reasonable and rational decision for their family and how can you you know how can you criticize that or ask anything of that and it actually within the context of politics is hard to ask people to sacrifice so i'm I'm curious how you read that dynamic and i guess how you do anything about it
1: so that's very, very true. When I did the piece on choosing a school for my daughter in New York City, I, I wrote that, right? That the, mm-hmm. the disparities in the education makes doing the right thing so hard. Because even if you are willing to get over your racial anxiety, you are literally being asked to put your child in an inferior school, a measurably inferior school because of our history of racism. So I, I get that. Um, And so I guess that's why my argument is you cannot rely on individual citizens to make that choice. Government is going to have to force it the same way the government forced uh, and helped individual white citizens uh, enforce racial segregation and inequality that created the situation where it becomes impossible to integrate or share resources by choice. The government has to apply that same amount of force because, of course, in, most individuals are not that at- altruistic and the education is harmful, right? I mean, that's that's the entire Point of my the work that I've been doing for more than a decade now is showing that the education that Black children receive is inferior um, by every measure. The counter to that, though, is if we say it's unfair or you can't expect that these people will put their kids in that school and any efforts to redress that is unfair to those, then we're just simply acknowledging that those upon whose back the system has been built, who generationally have been deprived of the ability to accumulate wealth, to send their children to quality schools, that they just have to remain in those schools, that that's the only answer because um, it's unfair to force white children to go to the same schools that black children have. Why ruin their education too? The subtext of that, though, is that black children have been sacrificed. And if we have to keep sacrificing them to protect white children, then so be it. This is the problem with busing. This is why you have someone like Joe Biden and then later basically Kamala Harris saying, no, I absolutely believe in integration. I think segregation is wrong, but just don't, you can't use busing. Well, busing worked. And the reason why busing stoked so much opposition is it wasn't some policy that was going to take 10, 20, 30, 40 years to bear fruit. It was immediate. And it said, overnight, we're going to mix these kids up. And you know what, white folks? The schools that you thought were good enough for black kids, suddenly your children are going to be in them. And then we'll see if you still think that those schools are just good enough, right? So it was the immediacy. And it really is this amazing kind of radical time where um, you haven't seen anything like that really since Reconstruction, where the federal government was like, we're not going to play around with this. We are actually going to abide by the Constitution. Um, And that's why you saw so much resistance. So I agree that it is untenable for most Americans, white Americans, middle-class Black Americans to ask them to put their kids into a school where they feel um, their kids aren't going to get a quality education and where they might not. But I I guess I'm trying to argue that it should be just as untenable that those who have generationally been in those schools have to remain in those schools because of that. This is why it requires government intervention. This is why you've never seen any real desegregation efforts come through the simple democratic process of uh, white people voting for it because they never will. That's the racial caste system. But I. It's immoral. And I guess my work is just arguing that. Then don't say you believe in equality because you actually don't. Um, And everyone suffers for it. Our entire educational system suffers for this inequality in a way that it would not, um, you know, we're often comparing ourselves to places like Switzerland and Sweden. Well, they don't have a country built on slavery and racial caste. You can't compare those countries to the United States. Because so much of our policy is driven by that racism. We've been talking about sacrifice and
2: the idea that if you're sending, if you're a white family that now has to bus your kids to a school that is worse, or you believe it is worse than the one you, 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 they were going to before, you're making the sacrifice. But but in the evidence of busing, did that happen? I mean, what you know this literature much better than I do. So what were, in the places where they really implemented busing, what happened to um, the Black and the white kids. What, 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 what were the what were the long term effects as opposed to the to the frustrations of the experience?
1: The long term effects were that white children did not suffer neither academically nor in long term um, outcomes for their lives, and black children actually saw the their life outcomes improve exponentially. And there's a very easy explanation for this when. I'm arguing for integration. It is because the research shows that never in the history of our country have Black children separated from white children gotten the same resources that white children got. It is not, you know, I say this over and over. There's nothing magical about white kids that makes Black kids smart. But there is something uh, about white kids in a racial caste system that ensures white kids get the best of everything that uh, gets Black kids those resources. And so you have there's an, this example that I put in that piece I did on busing, where in West Charlotte, they knew integration was coming to the Black high school when uh, the facilities people came and fixed the school up and stocked the uh, the science labs and brought new textbooks. This is actually because, you know, now white kids were going to be in that school. This is how integration has worked, is when you started shipping white kids into Black schools, suddenly the conditions that have been acceptable for Black kids are not acceptable anymore. And suddenly those schools get better teachers and better resources. Um, and that's unfortunately just the only way that it has worked. There, there's nothing inherently inferior about Black kids in an all-Black setting. But we don't live in a country where that doesn't matter.
2: You, One of the things that I found so striking in that piece and the, the look at the research in it, was I would have expected that integration would lead to more college attendance or higher incomes, but you you talk about a longitudinal study out of Berkeley that shows it cut health problems, it cut jail, um, and then most importantly, it was passed on generationally, it was passed on to the children. Like that's a, very few policies have that big of an effect, but the idea that you do this and it passes on to the children, I think is both intuitive but also the then, to your point a moment ago about the sort of segregated equilibrium being immoral, to not do that is quite a choice we are making to
1: allow schools to resegregate. It is. You know, you hear a lot of... Um a lot of justifications for why we can't integrate our schools, you know, politically or, you know, transportation is too hard. Um, But you never hear that it's not the right thing, both academically, morally, and for the much larger reason we go to school. We don't go to school to get good test scores. We go to school to change our lives and contribute to society. Um, You never hear those arguments because the data is just too clear on how integration is beneficial to all of our society. Um, so all of the reasons are usually political. And I think that that is uh, clearly a problem. There's an interesting uh, thought in there
2: that we are rhetorically very committed to the ideals of the nation. But in practice, I think very committed to capitalism. Mm-hmm. But we're very, and, and not not, by the way, for like an evil reason, but just because you know, it it makes sense to worry most about what is your son or daughter's chance in life going to be like, what is going to happen to them? But that there is something lost when all that is really happening is you have capitalism playing out in a rhetorical context of American ideals, not in education or other systems that, while I'm not saying that one should not be thinking about opportunity— that is somehow able to transmit the idea that it is as glorious and worthy and important an endeavor to try to create a truly real multi-ethnic liberal democracy. Um, that that is that achieving that should be as great a kind of goal of our lives, like so much as much part of our overarching story as you know, just the the straight-up competition to try to do a little bit better than the last generation. There's I recognize why one has a more tangible day-to-day pull. But it always strikes me as a somehow a failure of our like national storytelling that we don't see ourselves in this era as engaged in what could be a truly grand pursuit to 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 create this first truly huge liberal multi-ethnic democracy that that really functions in in the way it has promised to uh, as opposed to it's something that operates there on the side. And really, what we are pursuing is just um, you know, just like trying to get everybody trying to get people into college and then trying to make sure that they get a job that can pay off the the debt. Right. Like I'm not saying that's not important. It is, and it's a privilege to, you know, like frame it as just one of many things, but it is only one of many things. Like we are it's not the only reason we are here on earth.
1: Yeah. And you know, we I always tell people, you know, capitalism is not a system of morality. <laughs> and yeah. um We, you know, we venerate capitalism in this country and this idea of the rugged individualism, but capitalism is based on a system of winners and losers. And we know historically who those losers have been. But even if you take out uh, the race element, which, of course, you can't, this idea that only the strongest shall survive and prosper should be antithetical to our ideals of who we are as Americans We have the resources to take care of our citizens, to provide and ensure all citizens have, you know, a basic level of living in one of the most prosperous nations in the world. You know, we haven't always thought about our country and capitalism in this way. There have been periods where we believe. I mean, you can look at what happens after the Great Depression and we passed this New Deal legislation, which says, you know what, if you're old, you shouldn't have to live in dire poverty. We we will take care of you. If you are poor, we're going to provide and make sure you can at least feed your family and that you can get health care. Um we're going to try to build the middle class by subsidizing home loans, though we only end up building the white middle class. But there was this belief and you look at public institutions, public parks, well, not everyone, this comes from cities where not everyone could afford to have access to a backyard. Um, not everyone could build a public pool in their yard. um hospitals, public hospitals, public schools, this idea that we owe something to each other. And I think we are really losing. That And you, you can trace the kind of trajectory of the decline in particularly white American support for public institutions to the end of the civil rights movement, when all of a sudden now black people legally have access to these public spaces, you see a decline in support for them. So public hospitals become, you know, that that those are to serve the poor. Public transportation is to serve the poor. Public schools increasingly are becoming a place to only serve the poor. Um, And the rest of us can just pay for the services that we want. You see privatization of policing services ambulance services, where those who have money can get better functioning services than others. But that has not always been the case. And, And I think a lot of my work around public schools is arguing that you don't just Send your child to school so that your child can make a lot of money one day, that hopefully we send our children to school so that they can learn to be good citizens, so they can learn to be better people, so they can learn to live in a country where we don't live in a bubble, where where our fates are connected. And I think we really have to think about, um, do we want to be a society where only those who, have writ- who are rich and powerful can enjoy the benefits of this of this country and where we're also disconnected from each other? I would argue that I I hope not.
2: I I want to explore that question of how capitalism became a morality system for a minute, because I think it's such an important, crucial point. I believe in markets. I believe in a lot of the ideas of capitalism as an economic system and and the reasons they are worthwhile. But my biggest critique of capitalism, the, the space in it that makes me the most uncomfortable and the space where I'm least certain you can actually defend against it, is in the way it then over time becomes a totalizing philosophy. But something I was thinking about in your work um, and, and in this conversation is there are, of course, countries that are exactly as or arguably even more capitalistic than we are, but don't seem to absorb it as a moral philosophy in quite the same way we do. I mean, Bernie Sanders is considered in shorthand a socialist, although he's a democratic socialist. Mm-hmm. But what he believes in is Scandinavia. He, he It's a capitalist country. It's very, very, very capitalist, actually, as a country. It just doesn't absorb capitalism as a moral philosophy in quite the same way. And the particular way it doesn't is exactly what you were just saying, which is we absorbed capitalism in a very unequal country, in a country where the reasons and the drivers of inequality were deeply moral and chosen in their nature. But one nice thing about the the switchover from some of those ideologies straight up to overriding capitalism is it was a story that put people's outcomes fully on them. Mm-hmm. Like in capitalism, if you've done badly, right? If you have, if you are poor, if you don't have a good job, if you live in a dilapidated community, well, you know, you should have gotten a better job. You should have gotten more educated. You should have made better economic choices. Like capitalism is a great moral leveler of outcomes if you take it that way. And I wonder how much we slipped in capitalism as a moral philosophy because it became, to our earlier conversation, a race-neutral
1: way of justifying our society. I think that Is a huge part of it. Um, You know, there's a piece in the 1619 Project that looks like why we're the only Western industrialized country without universal health care. And I um, wanted that story because it is totally tied into anti-Black racism. And what polling shows again and again that white Americans' uh, support for social programs decline if they think large numbers of Black Americans are going to benefit from that. Um, So this type of capitalism where we are willing to sacrifice so many people you can't say it's entirely because of race, clearly, but but it developed in this way in a very specific American context. And um, this idea that we don't need to take care of each other because you have these lazy black folks who just don't want to work and we have to sacrifice some white people, that's okay. That is just a very American context. And we all suffer for that. This belief that we only want to take care of those who are worthy and those who are worthy look like us in a multiracial democracy just doesn't work. I guess, you know, Gunnar Myrdal, the, the Swedish sociologist, call this the American dilemma, where we believe in equality as an ideal, but not in practice. And so you hear all the time, we believe Americans are the most generous people on earth. And in some ways we can be, but we also are amongst the most stingiest of of wealthy nations. And, And we have these conflicting ideals. You can certainly practice, I mean, you can look at almost any European Western European country and see that you can practice both capitalism and caring for your citizenry, that you can socialize a bunch of institutions. I mean, I write about public schools. Uh, I at least once a week have some person who was like, we hate socialism. You're trying to socialize public schools. And I'm like, there's nothing more socialistic than public schools
2: to get your hands off <laughs> right. of my Medicare, get, <laughs> exactly. get the government's hands off of my Medicare of right. education, right?
1: Nine of 10 American children attend a public school. And when you poll parents, they love their own public schools. They might think uh, public education in America in general is shit, but they they love their own public schools. And so we, we do in some ways believe in this idea of a public good, but only if we can segregate it. So I love my public school because I live in a very white town with very white schools and I don't have to share that public good. But if I have to share the public good with people who I think are undesirable, who don't want to work as hard as I have, and I can completely in America ignore structural inequality because we believe any person who works hard has equal chance. We passed the civil rights legislation, so... All discrimination is gone and all structural inequality is gone in every person. It it becomes a way to justify, as you said, the tremendous inequality, but also uh, to purge ourselves of having to do something about the racism and the structural racism that is at our foundation. I mean, this is why we ultimately don't want to talk about slavery. It's why we want to, you know, only listen to the I Have a Dream part of Dr. King's speech in 1963 and forget that he was assassinated five years later. Um, That's really what drives us as America is this this inherent contradiction in who we think we are and um, the values we actually practice.
2: Something you had said a couple minutes ago is that given that there is a rationality on the individual level for that more zero sum approach to public goods. That you need state action. That that's the only way you can begin to you can be, begin to find an equilibrium there. And something that I learned from your work, but that was surprising to me, and seems like evidence for 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 that argument is that it is actually the schools in the South that are now the least segregated. Yes, that that is where there was enough state power brought to bear because people felt that it was legitimate for it to to be brought to bear to actually come closer to making good on um, on desegregation in schools. Can you talk a bit about that and about what happened in other parts of the country that they have, despite thinking themselves more racially enlightened, have actually um, existed with a more segregated education system?
1: Yes. The South has actually, despite popular reputation, been the most integrated region of the country since the early 1970s. It has remained. It went from uh, really within a span of 10 years, complete apartheid, to uh, the most integrated for Black children, and it has remained that way. There's so a couple reasons for that. We should just be very clear. There is no um, sectional divide uh, with racism in the United States. The racism in the North could appear to be more benign because for most of the history of this country, 98% of the Black population lived in the South. But as soon as you saw the Great Migration split the Black population where half of the Black population moves out of the South, you see the very same type of racist tactics, violence, segregation that you saw in the South. But there were two things that were different about the South. Um, One, because the South is more agrarian, most school districts in the South were countywide. That meant that they were um, inherently metropolitan school districts. So when courts began after Brown v. Board of Education to order desegregation in the South, you as a white um, person had two choices. Uh, You either attended a desegregated school and they could desegregate them because the metropolitan districts served city, county, and suburbs. There was no place for you to escape as a white person. Uh, Either you went to a desegregated school or you paid for private school, and most People cannot pay for private schools. So white Southerners largely dealt with it um, in most parts of the South. The North was very different. First, the North didn't believe that uh, Brown v. Board of Education applied to it at all because they didn't have, at least at the time of Brown, laws on the books requiring segregation, even though segregation was being maintained through official policy. And judges began to find, in places like Boston, Chicago, Newark. I mean, name your, your northern city, Philadelphia, um, Cleveland, Dayton, that all of these school boards had violated the Constitution and intentionally segregated Brown um, and began to order desegregation there too. But there was a problem. In the North, a county could have 10 school districts, a city district surrounded by suburban districts, surrounded by a rural district, and the. Uh, um White Americans, as we know, simply just fled. They moved. If there was even a whiff that desegregation was going to come, they picked up and moved to an all-white town with all-white schools. And when the Supreme Court in 1974, in a Detroit case, ruled that um, unless you found a constitutional violation in every white suburb, you could not order a metropolitan desegregation order, that made it pretty much impossible to desegregate because in a place like Detroit or Dayton or Chicago, all the white population simply left and there were no white kids left in the cities to integrate with. At the time of Brown v. Board of Education, the North was only slightly more integrated than the South, even though it didn't have racial apartheid laws on the books. And after Brown v. Board, because of these court orders, um, you saw rampant desegregation in the South and it has it had been fairly stable until courts started to release those court orders and almost no desegregation in the North and the West. And so that remains to this day, the most segregated region of the country for Black children is uh, the Northeast and the Midwest. And for Latino children, it is the West uh, and um, the Northeast. Again, where it was forced and there wasn't an escape, white people just dealt with it. And I think that's why... (laughs) I'm arguing that, it one, it has to be forced, but two, folks will figure it out. Um, all across the South, there are white people who went to black schools because they didn't have a choice, and they are fine, and they survived, and now they proselytize around integration. Most white Americans in the Northeast and the Midwest never had that experience, and so many school desegregation orders in the South were released after a white parent from the North moved down there and sued because they realized, oh, shit down here, I can't buy into a white neighborhood and get into a white school. So this kind of racial innocence that we love in the North, it really is non-existent. And we tolerate a disgusting amount of segregation up here that um, you don't find in most places in the South.
2: So one, I think the the um, questions that that might bring up for people, one, Southern schools don't in general have great reputations. If you like look at rankings of the top of the states by school districts, they like the sort of deep south often does quite Mm -hmm. poorly on those and two i don't think people feel in general that racial relations in the south are much better than they are elsewhere you just have the whole thing with the confederate flags and monuments so if that is a part of the the country that's done the best job desegregating its schools, and yet it's also not a part of the country that people want to look at as a model of educational excellence, how do those things come together? Or are there other reasons, uh, in your view, that the schools have, you know, not, not quite succeeded compared to other parts of the country?
1: I mean, well, one, the South is the poorest region of the country, uh, also a legacy of slavery. And the Southern schools... Uh, are funded at much lower rates than Northern schools. So you can't just compare uh, education. You have to compare similarly funded, similarly impoverished areas um, if you're going to compare test scores. But also, um, if you want to look at the impacts of integration, then you have to compare Southern schools to similarly integrated schools outside of the South. It's very easy you know, to look at a place like Vermont and compare it to a place like Mississippi when Mississippi is the poorest state in the country and is serving a much, much less white and affluent population. Um, So the comparison would really have to be, well, how well are Black students doing in the region compared to a place like New York City? What is the inequality between those? You have to look at what's the income. Um, We love to look down on the South I think if you asked uh, white people what they think about race relations uh, in the South versus the North versus black people, you get a very, very different answer. Um, again, we we like to have this racial innocence up here, but the most segregated parts of the country for housing is also the Northeast and the Midwest. It's very easy to appear racially egalitarian. If you don't have to live around Black people, you don't see Black people, you don't share your spaces with Black people. And that is the feature of cities like New York, of Chicago, of Philadelphia, of Milwaukee, all of these places that are highly, highly segregated. And and so uh, we can pretend that uh, white racism there is is less. The Confederate flag is, is, is the least of our worries. It is uh, the structural inequality in schools and neighborhoods and resources that are a problem. The Confederate flag is is easy. When we're looking at you know, my daughter's school and the things that those white progressive parents were saying about the black school that my daughter went to, they didn't have a Confederate flag, but you could have been uh, in any place in the fictional South of your imagination and hearing what they said. Wherever you see large numbers of black people, you see a great deal of white animosity and a great deal of structural inequality. And of all places, uh, I think white, the old the adage is in the South, um, They wanted you close, but you could only go so high. And in the North, you could go as high as you wanted as long as you're not close. And I think that that's very true. Day-to-day life between black and white people in the South is much more integrated than you find in the North. Um, White people in the North just largely choose not to have to deal with black people at all.
2: All right. Let's take a quick break right here, and then we'll be right back.
0: With Kizik Free Shoes, motion sounds something like this. Kizik helps you experience the magic of motion. With over 200 patents and easy on, easy off technology, you'll never have to touch your shoes again. There are hundreds of styles and colors, plus a squish like nothing you've ever felt. For a limited time, get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks.
2: Integration came into the Democratic primary in a, in a, big way, but also in a very weird way, as we were kind of gesturing out earlier, which is Kamala Harris attacked Joe Biden for being against busing. Um, and then when asked if she was for busing, said no. <laughs> and kind of the um the 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 conversation almost stopped there. Is there, are there candidates right now, or even just places that you think have a viable and sufficiently um ambitious integration agenda? And if so, what what is it? <laughs> 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 that that laughs at a lot right there. <laughs> yeah.
1: I mean, one, let me just, um, I, I'm definitely not an expert on uh, race relations internationally. Um, and it's also hard to look at countries that didn't have, you know, large institutions of slavery and compare them to United States. The answer is probably going to be surprising uh, that I'm going to give, which is if you want to see the most equal uh multiracial uh, it's not a democracy <laughs> most equal multiracial country in our hemisphere it would be Cuba. Cuba has the least inequality between black and white people uh, uh any place really in the hemisphere that's uh I mean the Caribbean, most of the caribbean, it's it's hard to count because the white population in a lot of those countries is very, very small. They're countries run by black folks. But in places that are truly um at least biracial countries, Cuba actually has the least inequality. And that's largely due to socialism, which I'm sure no one wants to hear,
2: <laughs> yeah. so I mean, what is that <laughs> what does that actually imply for imply for us? I mean, if you are if you're a candidate running and you want to have a, a genuine integration agenda, like, what What might that look like? Like, what do you think could work? Um, and, may, and it's a podcast, so the answer could just be socialism. But right now, it seems to me that people are talking about it, but they don't really have a clear, there's not a clear consensus on what to do about it. Have you seen anything that, you know, you think could translate into that? I guess probably within the context of our system. But if the answer is you need to change the system, that at least is an answer.
1: Well, one, there's no easy answer. Whatever we are to try to do is going to be very controversial and very difficult. We know what to do. It's it's can you actually get the will to do it? And that's kind of why when you look at what happens in the 1960s around school integration, it is the rarest of times. Again, the only other time we've seen anything like that is Reconstruction, where the federal government, all three branches unite on actually trying to force Uh, equality and the ideals of our constitution and that period lasts you know not even 10 years Um, reconstruction (laughs) lasts like 12 years uh, in the entire, you know, 400-year history of our country or what would become our country. So what what you would have to do, um, one, you would have to collapse all of these uh, fractured school district lines and just have countywide districts all across the country. You would have to stop funding schools by local property tax. You would uh, have to rigorously enforce the Fair Housing Act so that our housing can actually be fair and open and more integrated. And then you're going to have to assign students to schools based on race. We really are, we are in a place in our country uh, largely led by a conservative Supreme Court where we don't want to deal with uh, racial disadvantage through race-specific policies, and you just can't get rid of entrenched racial disadvantage with race-neutral policies. So what we really need is a, a third civil rights movement where We see true enforcement of civil rights laws, where you see children being assigned to schools based on their race in order to achieve integration, where we break up the connection between where you live and where you go to school, but not in this kind of market-driven school choice uh, frenzy that we've seen where we pretend we are uh, untying kids from zip codes, but really we're just allowing white families to flee schools with too many Black kids in them. Um, those are the things that we would have to do. But I always say, you know, we want racial inequality on the cheap. We don't. We want to appear like we care. We want to appear, you know, we, we say we believe in equality, but we're willing to do almost nothing to achieve it. Uh, we know what to do. We we just won't do it. And there's not a politician who would be considered viable Who would put forth a plan for public schools that would lead to real integration? There just isn't one. Even Kamala, you know, we talk about Kamala Harris going after Joe Biden brought, uh, you know, kind of thrust this issue into the mainstream uh, political conversation. But when's the last time you heard about it?
2: No, I mean, everybody ran away from it real quick. <laughs> it went away
1: really fast. And even she like very quickly backtracked and said, well, I believed in busing back then, but we don't really need it now. Well, schools are actually, in terms of black children, exactly as segregated uh, now as they were in the 1970s when she was being bused and when Joe Biden was fighting against busing. So what's the difference? So even even with your most left political candidates, they're not actually talking about... Um, doing any types of structural reform because they know they have no chance in hell uh, of getting elected. And this is why I always say housing and school segregation is a bipartisan white issue. It doesn't really matter what side of the aisle you're on. Um, Everyone's kind of opposed. You
2: said a moment ago that you can't deal with entrenched racial inequality through race neutral policies. but. I think one of the very popular arguments in the Democratic Party, and on the left for that matter, is actually that you can, that you can do it through class-based policies. Um, And you've seen this actually, a number of the candidates said they supported reparations and then Warren and Kamala Harris and others, when asked what they supported, brought up things that were race-neutral, big expansions of the EITC or universal childcare. Um, Cory Booker has a plan that he's framed as closing the racial wealth gap, but it's a race-neutral baby bonds plan. And so the, the argument you hear on this is that Well, look, if the thing you're concerned about is economic inequality and um, because of entrenched racial inequality, that's much more concentrated among black Americans, but also Hispanics and so on, that you actually can address it or a lot of it through race neutral but class-based policies, which have an easier political path and rhetoric around them anyway. So um, how do you you think about that argument?
1: It's a fiction. I mean... That's assuming the primary disadvantage that Black people face is income. It is not. So let's just one start with the fact that most Black people are not poor. Yes, Black people are disproportionately poor, but most Black people are not poor. So if every person gets a baby bond, yes, there will be a larger percentage of Black people who get a baby bond, but that doesn't address the wealth gap. Uh, that doesn't um, close the gap between poor white people and poor black people. What the census data shows is that actually lower income white Americans have more wealth than middle class black Americans. And lower income white Americans live in wealthier neighborhoods than middle income black Americans. Black Middle income black Americans live in uh, more densely pover- impoverished neighborhoods than poor white people. Middle-income Black people are more likely to have their kids in high-poverty schools than poor white people. So while I believe, I actually, I support universal programs, but they are not going to close the race gap. And the assumption that most Black people are poor or that the primary disadvantage that Black Americans face is poverty and not racism is just simply not backed up by uh, data, research, facts, or understanding of history. So, If you can bring a bunch of Black folks up from the bottom, that is excellent. But it still doesn't do anything about the primary disadvantage that Black Americans face. And I'll just give you a quick example of how this works. I know a lot of middle-class Black folks. I know a lot of upper-middle-class Black folks. Most of them still live in high-poverty Black neighborhoods that have been redlined that don't have quality schools. While Black people have income. They don't have the wealth to get a down payment, to buy into a higher income neighborhood and a higher opportunity neighborhood. They are stuck. Meanwhile, and I have this example in my own life, a white neighbor who uh, the husband worked as a freelance a freelance uh, musician and the wife was a nurse, bought into the neighborhood because the mother was able to give them the down payment they had a lot less income than most of the black people I know, but they did have the advantage of generational wealth, which black people don't have. So whenever I hear people talk about these universal programs, I understand that it's a great talking point and it's a way that you can get white people to embrace it. But we need to just call it what it is. Right. It it, it will disproportionately help some black folks. They won't help most Black Americans, and they certainly aren't going to close the wealth gap. They aren't going to close the disadvantage and opportunity gap. They just, they just don't.
2: Yeah, I just want to emphasize a point you make in there that I think is so important, because when we talk about class-based policies, we tend to actually be thinking about policies for the
1: poor, poor. That's right. which is
2: important. But if you're looking at racial inequality, a huge amount of it has to do also with how do you stack up the Black and Hispanic and Asian and white middle classes? How do That's you right. stack up the upper classes? And You can do a lot. I mean, you can do a lot to lift up the neediest through class-based policies that are focused on the poor. But in terms of building a more equitable society, it actually is is a huge amount to do with people who are not poor. And like class-based policies are almost never supposed to do much for them. If anything, it'll tax them. And so much of the evidence on the wealth gap has to do also do with how easy it is with that intergenerational wealth to get into the middle class and fall back out of it or up above into the upper middle class and fall down, you know, back down to the lower middle class. And these policies don't do much there. So, I, I just, it's just a point that has kind of been beaten into me by some of the experts here, but people miss this that if you're trying to deal with equality, you're not just dealing with the poor. We kind of think about this all in terms of poverty and disadvantage, but oftentimes it's that's not actually what equality means.
1: That's right. And even amongst the poor, there's a racialized experience. So, one, black people are more deeply poor than white people, but also, again, it, it is. What type of neighborhood can a poor white person live in versus a poor black person? What type of school does a poor white person live in versus a poor or send their child to versus a poor black person? What type of concentrated poverty are they living in? You know, what type of structural advantage are in the neighborhoods that they're living in? And what Family wealth might they have versus a poor black person? So the experiences are very different. White people have poverty, but they are not having to uh, procure housing in a racially discriminatory housing market, for instance. So I was looking, you know, some years ago at HUD data on Section 8 vouchers, and it found that. Uh, poor white people using Section 8 vouchers were able to use those vouchers to get into high-opportunity white neighborhoods. But poor Black people who were using those vouchers were having to use those vouchers in the exact same type of poor Black neighborhoods that those vouchers were supposed to get them out of. Simply providing more vouchers does not deal with that primary discrimination that Black people have to face that white people don't. So um, even... Policies simply directed at the poor won't bridge that gap. Um, And then the research also shows, you know, that unemployment rates for white high school dropouts are actually lower than unemployment rates for college educated black folks. So even black people who have done, quote unquote, everything right, who have gotten their degrees um, still face higher unemployment rate from white people who haven't still face a job market where uh, a white person with a criminal record is more likely to get a callback for an interview than a black person without a criminal record. Um, None of these policies are going to address that. So you certainly need financial policies. Uh, Universal health care would be great for black folks because there are so many black people who don't have health care. Equally funding our public schools would be great for black people because we rely more heavily on uh, public schools. But that's not how you solve uh, racial inequality, and we should stop arguing that it is. It actually demeans the experience uh, of, of Black people and, and really is just uh, denial. I think you have to have, um, again, race-specific policies of redistribution and also very strong enforcement of civil rights laws.
2: We've talked a bit about um, schools that if you were in them, if you were in their district, you could get into them, right? Public schools that kind of take take everybody who qualifies, and then the question being how do you qualify But to something you were discussing earlier about there being an illusion of how well racial equality works in areas that are not the South, there's been a fight in New York um, where you're based about testing into the gifted and talented schools like Stuyvesant and an argument that the tests are racist and then a counter argument that the test kind of can't be racist, that you're sort of that, that, that now you're you're trying to. Um, entrench a like race based idea of something that is supposed to cut out race and allow you to be race neutral, and I believe they've gotten rid of the tested. Stuyvesant or at least Bill De Blasio has said they should. How do you they think about that? They have not gotten rid of it. No. They've not gotten rid of no. it. How do you think about that controversy? Like how how should somebody way outside of the New York City testing um, debates think about think about those questions about things like tested are not on their face uh, racially biased, but certainly have racially disparate impacts.
1: So if we are to look at New York City, this is this is why I always study history, because history is almost always instructive. Those tests that so New York City is the only school system in the country that admits students into the specialized high schools uh, based on a single test. No other school in the country does that. Not even your elite private schools admit students based just on a single test, which means your entire academic record doesn't matter, your behavior doesn't matter, your attendance doesn't matter. It's just a single test. That test is teaching on material that is not taught in the curriculum of the public school system. It requires outside test prep um, because it is not material that's taught in the schools. So one would have to ask, well, why would you uh, be the only system in the country that admits to your best public high schools on a single test that is not even aligned with the curriculum? And the answer is that that test was implemented by the state legislature during the 70s um, in reaction to efforts to diversify those specialized schools black and Latino kids. And so the test is actually producing exactly what it's supposed to produce. It keeps out uh, nearly all black and Latino kids from those schools. It is um, fundamentally unfair when we think about um, our most prestigious colleges in this country, Harvard, Yale, Princeton, you name it, not a single one of them admits students based on a single test. But outside of that, because um, there's also now a, a recommendation that's come from a school diversity task force in the city to end all talented and gifted programs. And that's going to be a much bigger and uglier fight than a handful of specialized high schools. It's, I think it's this idea, one, that uh, we should sort our kids, that some kids are intellectually worthy of a top tier public education and other kids are not. Um, I find it highly problematic. That would be highly problematic in a country that was not built on racial caste, but in a country that was built on racial caste. I think it's very clear what results we get. Um, Our talented and gifted program in this city and in every city that is diverse is very heavily white. Um, And so you, you are sustaining a two tiered system. I think we should all question whether we would want our worth summed up by a test ever in life. If one day sitting down and taking a test would determine your value uh, for anything that you want in life, but particularly for your education and particularly for a public education. I'm more radical on this probably than most people. I don't believe in sorting our kids at all. I don't believe in talented and gifted. I don't believe in uh, specialized schools for some kids. I don't believe in screening children to go into a public system. I believe that whatever education we are offering to any kids in our system uh, deserve to be offered to all kids in our system. That is what a democratic institution is. And there's almost no more democratic institution than our public schools.
2: So I've been thinking a lot about schooling, just reading your work and preparing for this interview. And also, uh, I have a new son, and I've been thinking about my own path through school. And I went to public schools um, through and was not a good student and did not take a bunch of AP classes or any of that, although I took, you know, a couple. But Wow, imagine that. And you are still managed to be smart. S- still managed to be here. I mean, it's amazing. <laughs> but I also hate, I also really struggled, actually, in school. Mm-hmm. Um, really did poorly, really was unhappy. I mean, graduated with a 2.2, like not a fake poorly, but like a real, like right. failed classes, that kind of thing. And I actually lean a bit towards where you are on the question of gifted and talented. But the other thing that I wouldn't want to see, and I think about this for for, for my son, is that there are a lot of kids for whom the way we school just doesn't work. Yes. Um. And I, it, it always seems to me they would be better. There are a lot of ways to sort children by how smart they are in schools right now. You can put them in AP classes. You can put them in gifted and talented programs, magnet schools, you know, so on. Yes. But there aren't that many ways to sort kids by learning styles, by just what they may need, Um, which always strikes me as a different kind of disadvantage. So, I mean, when I hear you said uh, one of my first thoughts is, well, I don't want it to be impossible for kids, my kid or any other, to to kind of find a school that might fit them better. But on the other hand, I I really resonate to the idea that it shouldn't be that the primary sorting mechanism is intelligence. So I'm curious if you think about or have seen examples of places that allow you allow kids to, s- to try to find a school that works for them but doesn't do it primarily off of the question of can you test in to a smarter elite program?
1: I think it's so hard in a country with our history because um, there are a lot of school districts that offer choice. I mean, New York City probably offers as much or more choice than any school district in the country. You could look at Chicago. There are tons of different types of schools, schools that focus on teaching in different ways, on, um, you know, different types of curriculum. But we, because of our legacy in this country, who gets access to those schools, the best of those schools just replicates uh, the racial hierarchies of this country. So can you design a system that meets the needs of individual students, but that does not continue to disadvantage those kids who have always been disadvantaged? I think that's why in, in in some places you're arguing for, you know, giving parents some choice, but not unmitigated choice. So that, yes, hopefully you can find a school that meets the needs of your child, but that is not also excluding uh, poor and black and brown kids, and and we just we struggle to do that in every way. I think that's why, in some ways, I argue, you know, I don't, I wouldn't say that public schools should be one size fits all, um, but in some ways, the more choice we have in the system, the more stratification we see of inequality. So, can we create a system that does both very well? I'm not sure. The beauty of it is, though, is for, not the beauty, I guess the tragedy, for people like you and me, um, no matter what our kid gets in that school, we'll make sure they get what they need. And all of my work is about those kids whose parents do not have the ability to get what they need and what do they deserve. And what's much less important for them is, you know, can I have a arts magnet school, but can I get a sound education that actually teaches me to read um, and allows me to learn and allows me to change my life? And um, not to dismiss what you're saying, but I, I spend very little time thinking about um, other types of kids.
2: Yeah, I think that makes, I mean, I will say that I think that makes a lot of political sense, right? This, so there's this, a this lot of very... kids
1: like you who are, I, I don't know what your parents did, Right. But there clearly are a lot of kids who, like you, who struggled in school, um, whose parents could not mitigate any of those factors and who deserve to go into schools that can teach to their learning styles and conditions as well.
2: Well, it's funny just thinking about it is my parents didn't end up doing much. I mean, I come from a a family that, you know, we were able to, like I did an SAT test prep and also did not pay good attention, but I I, I always tested very well, right? There's a part of me that when I I am like, I am somebody who testing was able to reveal something that like schooling was not because I can't pay attention well, but I can test very well. Um, But we didn't do anything. I just did badly in high school and then tested into the UC system has an eligibility uh, approach that, you know, is usually a GPA, SAT, um, you know, it's a kind of ratio between them. But if you get in my day over a 1400, you could get into UC Santa Cruz, UC Riverside. And that's what I did. And it worked out fine. I didn't go to the best possible school that like you could in the country, but I did great. And, you know, it was it was all okay. And I think all okay for all the reasons you bring up. So my experience in some ways might have been unpleasant, but it didn't hurt me. Whereas the experience that you actually focus on, um, it is unpleasant and it, it really holds people back. And so one of the things that I do recognize is that the system is incredibly responsive to the concern of people like me. Right. Like people who. They didn't enjoy school, but then they did quite well in life. And so um, now, you know, have the resources or have the access to complain about schooling. And if you I listen to podcasts and this stuff comes up a lot and it is not responsive to the kinds of people who the nature of their problem with schooling is that then they did not do that well in life and now they do not have the political access to try to build schools that are better for them. So I, I will say that on the one hand, I think it's a really interesting tension you bring up between this question of choice and stratification and can we um does equality mean we have to level down or does it mean we can level up? Um, you know, those are those are tough questions. But on the other hand, I also I also take the corrective on well, this. Well, it could yeah.
1: mean you could level up, right? Like we we absolutely have the resources to level up. We just don't choose to use them that way. I mean, it, it seems a, a little cliche to bring up incarceration versus education, but it actually is very revealing. We will find the money to incarcerate. we we just will. we will do whatever we have to do. Um, but when it comes to properly funding our schools, we have all of these reasons why we can't do it and particularly when it comes, you know if we're if we're not going to integrate and we're going to continue to concentrate poverty in schools, then the amount of money and resources it takes to mitigate that is going to be exponentially higher than what it takes to provide a good education for a school where you don't have that poverty. So we can make that choice. Um, But even outside of the racial context, I guess I would just argue that the way we determine which children are worthy of a quality education and which children are worthy of the best educational, public educational opportunities we have to offer, I also just think is very immoral. Um, We're basically telling kids starting in middle school, uh, if you are not a perfect student, you're not actually worth the best. You don't deserve to have access to the best schools. That's just a really messed up thing. I don't think that a kid, you know, you are not unworthy of a good education because you didn't enjoy school. You are not unworthy of opportunities because your grades weren't great. And and you clearly uh, are very intelligent, very brilliant, very um, able to do high-level academic work. But what if you weren't? And what if you actually are just of average intelligence? And what if you um, are always going to struggle? You still deserve— a great education. And you shouldn't be separated from my child just because my child has more advantage. I guess that's really what I'm trying to argue for is that we're we're just teaching our kids very, very early that some of them are worthy of things and some of them are not. Um, and, you know, you you kind of touched on this the exact a kid who had the exact same relationship as you had to schools, but who grew up in inner city Detroit. The trajectory of their lives is gonna be completely different from yours, even if they had the exact same grade point average as you did, because those kids don't get the benefit of the doubt. Right. That is seen as something inherently wrong with those kids versus a middle class white child who gets a 2.2. We're trying to figure out what how are we failing that child. Mm-hmm. The black kid in the in the inner city, it's something's wrong with that child, and something's wrong with that child's family. And we don't actually have to do anything to mitigate that because they just don't want it. Um, And and that's kind of the the fundamental inequality that we're dealing with in a racialized system.
2: Yeah, I I think that uh, two things just on that. One is that we have a kind of like background ideology, which a lot of it comes out of the particular way we interpret capitalism. But this idea that the resources should attract to the people who succeed, as opposed to if you're doing great, maybe that's actually okay, right? Like maybe maybe you're cool. And the resources should concentrate around the people who are struggling. There's no particular reason that you would pick the um, approach of this that that we typically do, but in in practice, that's what we're doing, right? We, if you are able to win the competition, you begin generating compounding advantage, um, and we call that sort of fair. But obviously, it's a it's a way of compounding some of the kind of unfairness of genetic and familial and cultural and um, community endowment. Um, and the other thing is that. The idea of school is this leveler to to what happens outside. Like I did badly in school because I have like a like a learning issue where I have trouble paying attention to people just talking in front of me. Um, And I've had to do a lot of work on that. But I was able to then have this very enriching environment out of it where I could be like I can read books really well. Like that is like how I spent all my time. But if I had not had that, if that was not something somebody could give me, like then I just would have like then I just would have suffered, right? And for a lot of people, you can't, right? The question of can you make up the problem somebody has in school outside seems really, really big. Like, as you were saying, you know, for people with means, like you can you can kind of deal with it on the back end, but without it, you kind of have to deal with it there. And so the choices people have about schooling, if they're not doing that well, can they find somewhere that does fit them are much more urgent.
1: That's right. And it it is this kind of, for so many of the kids I write about, school's not the only problem they have, right? Like, they're coming from unstable homes. They're coming from neighborhoods of concentrated poverty. Like, every aspect of their life, they face disadvantage. And then we're somehow okay and say they're deserving of disadvantage in schools, too. Like, the one area of life that we can control, which is the public school, um, instead of trying to mitigate those advantages, we just continue them, Um I, I laugh with my friends a lot because I'm like, the more money I have, the more free stuff people give me, right? <laughs> like you you go places, you don't have to pay to drink. You don't have to pay to eat. People give you gift bags and they give you all of this stuff. But when you actually need things to survive, nobody wants to give you anything. And then when you get into these positions, um, you somehow think you deserve it. I mean, this is the language I hear all the time. Like my, I worked hard. My child deserved this. Um, deserves to have these things and this concentrated advantage. So, you know, people don't pay $50,000 a year for a private school just for the academics. It's for all the other rich parents who are in that school. It's for all of the the uh, social capital that they have in the in that school. But then when it comes to poverty, we somehow deny the existence of all of those things. And you're just supposed to work hard, Um I talked about this a lot with my daughter's school, you know, without us being in a school like that, there's no one there who can say, oh, you're interested in Notre Dame? I went there. Let me write you a letter of recommendation. Oh, you want to tour at the New York Times? Come on up. I'll, I'll take you on a tour. I can introduce you to this person who can get you the internship. It's that social advantage that so many of us want to hoard for our own children, but then deny that it matters when we know that it does. Um, this is, I mean, the beauty of integration when we really work it is it forces some of us to give up a disadvantage, but in a way that's never going to hurt our child, but helps other kids to get in access to that advantage that they never otherwise would have. And this is why I really feel like the conversation is about what are your actual values, not your stated values, but what do you actually believe in? Because you can't actually fight for both of those things at the same time.
2: I think it's a powerful note to end on. So let me ask you uh, the, the question we I used to close the show, which is, what are three books that have influenced you that you would recommend to the audience?
1: I read a lot of history. Um, so I'm going to recommend three of those texts. Uh, the first one is W.E.B. Du Bois' Black Reconstruction. I think it, uh, it would just be revelatory for people on uh, a number of levels. My favorite book of all time is Isabel Wilkerson's book, The Warmth of Other Suns, which will be revelatory for people who haven't read it for a lot of different reasons. Um, And one of the few books that I've taken the time to read twice is The Race Beat. And it's about um, the role of the press during the civil rights movement. And that's also one of my all-time favorite books.
2: Nicole Hannah-Jones, thank you very
1: much. Thank you.
2: Thank you, Nicole Hannah-Jones, for being here. Thank you to Cynthia Gill for engineering, to Jeffrey Geld for producing, to Roger Karma for researching. My email, as always, Kleinshow at Vox.com. I appreciate your feedback, your guest suggestions, your thoughts, whatever. Um, The Ezra Klein Show is, as always, a Vox Media podcast production.